in your sermon series. Welcome. So here's our question. What about the insights from the scriptures guide our understanding of the ethical consideration and potential challenges posed by AI advancements? Padmini's second love is AI. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a scientist, so I'm going to do the best I can to answer this as a theologian. So we'll see how this goes. Um, I thought a lot about this question, Padmini, uh, and how best to answer it, and the best way I could come up with was by writing a letter to you as a congregation. So uh, this is a letter called Dear Paradox. Dear Paradox, today we delve into a topic that challenges the boundaries of human understanding, artificial intelligence. In our quest for knowledge and innovation, we are reminded of the timeless wisdom found in Proverbs 4.7. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. As we navigate the world of artificial intelligence, we are called to seek wisdom and understanding. AI is a testament to the incredible potential of the human mind and our God-given capacity to create. It has the power to transform our lives, from healthcare advancements to addressing complex global challenges. Yet this power comes with great responsibility. As we embrace AI, we must also consider its ethical implications. Our faith teaches us to use our knowledge for the betterment of humanity, to love our neighbors, and to pursue justice. In the realm of AI, this means ensuring that our creations reflect these values. So let us remember the wisdom of Proverbs 4-7 as we journey through the age of artificial intelligence. Let us seek understanding, discernment, and compassion in all of our technological endeavors. And may we use the knowledge we gain to honor our creator, to benefit our communities, and to advance the cause of justice with love in this ever-changing world. Amen. I didn't write any of that. It was written by a computer on ChatGPT. <laughs> Here was the prompt I put in. Write a one-minute sermon about artificial intelligence using Proverbs 4-7 as a supporting verse in the style of Craig Hadley from Paradox Church in Redlands, California. The only thing it was missing was Fast and Furious references. Everything else was right on, right? Is anyone else freaked out by this? I mean, that is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from replacing me. And when I think about this as my contribution to the world, my question becomes, what happens when the computers get better at preaching than I do? Because it doesn't seem like it's that far off, right? And so when we have this question about artificial intelligence and the ethical implications and the potential challenges as far as my own self-esteem, we have to look closely at this and ask ourselves, where on earth are we going from here? And is there anything in our tradition that can help us as we navigate the uncertainty of the future? I think that we can learn a lot from our tradition. And to show you where that can come from, I want to tell you two stories from Scripture and one story from church history. Does that sound like an excellent time or what? All right, got most of you. Let's go. About 3,300 years ago, we are in the Egyptian Empire around 1300 BCE. And according to the book of Exodus, there was a nation that was enslaved to this empire. They were the nation of Israel, and they were enslaved for 400 years. God heard their cry, however, and with a mighty and miraculous hand, liberated them and led them into the wilderness. 
Once they got to the wilderness, they thought to themselves, are we destined to die out here? But God said, no, no, no. There is a promised land that I will lead you into. There's just one problem with the promised land. There's people already living there. And if you want to talk about a theological thought experiment, a great one is, why didn't God lead them somewhere where no one was living? But that's a sermon for another time. So it's here that God says, we need to go into the promised land, and he summons a, uh, a, a military leader named Joshua and says, Joshua, let's get prepared for battle, which raises the question, how do the, the Israelites prepare for the biggest war of their generation? Well, God has a three-part military plan. Number one, they are to build an altar. Number two, circumcise all the men. And then number three, give the Passover offering and eat the Passover feast. To which my response is, what? What kind of military plan is this? You think like tactical maneuvers might be part of this military plan. But instead, God says, no, 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 don't practice any military maneuvers. Don't do any of that. Instead, just get real serious about your religion. Well, why is that? The central theology of Joshua and arguably the entire Hebrew Bible is this. Wars are won and lost by the gods, not human beings. In other words, it's up to God as to whether or not a battle is won and the way that we make sure that God is on our side because we believe our God is more powerful than their God is we show our devotion to this God over and over again. And a major motivating factor for the participation of religion becomes this. As long as we are devout in our religion, then we will not lose a battle. This is really important theology to understand about the book of Joshua because there are all these ripple effects that pop up throughout the Hebrew Bible. And rather than picturing Joshua as running people through military training drills and taking his shirt off and saying, let's get down to business, Joshua says, no, 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 let's get real religious to win this war. So keep that theology in mind, and we'll move to our second story from Scripture about 300 years later. This story unfolds in the Valley of Elah, which is near where modern-day Jerusalem is, even though Jerusalem wasn't a city when this story takes place. Now, if you go to the Valley of Elah today, it looks something like this, and this is essential to understanding the story. Because the way the story goes is that the Israelites were on top of one hill, and then there was the Valley of Elah between them, and on top of the other hill was the Philistine nation. And the way this story unfolds is eventually the Philistines send a giant champion, a man named Goliath, who is nine feet tall, down into the valley. And from there, Goliath calls up to the Israelites and says, send me your best warrior and we'll settle this in a one-on-one -on -one duel. Now, the scriptures describe Goliath in great detail and in particular, what Goliath is wearing. We read, Goliath wore a bronze helmet and bronze armor plates that weighed 125 pounds. He wore bronze greaves on his legs with a bronze javelin slung over his back. The spear shaft could serve as a weaver's rod, and its iron point alone weighed 15 pounds. What word jumps out at you? Bronze. Big is a good one too, though, but bronze is the one that's repeated over and over again. And when you look at what bronze is, bronze is all of this protective and offensive weaponry and armor, right? 
And when you look at this story, what happens is these Israelites on top of a hill look down. They see someone covered in head to toe in bronze. He's taller than all of them. And they react by seeing all of this. And they were dismayed and terrified. And later, Scripture says, they were also filled with fear. Why? Because the Israelites have far less bronze than the Philistines. And this is a problem. And this is kind of the basic premise of every Marvel movie ever made. As long as we have the best tech, because we're the good guys, we'll win and there will be justice and peace everywhere, right? So this story unfolds this way until the golden boy of the Hebrew Bible, David, shows up and says, hey, is anybody going to fight this guy? And King Saul says, no. So David says, don't lose heart. I will fight the Philistine. So Saul the king calls David into his tent and starts to put his own tunic on David. He also places a bronze helmet on his head and he gives him a coat of mail to wear. Notice it's not made out of bronze. He then goes on to, to add a sword that is fastened over his tunic, once again, not made of bronze. And then David sees all of this and says, stop. I can't go in these. I am not used to this armor. So David took them off. And when you consider that all the bronze that Israel has in this story is basically reduced to one helmet, a better reading of the text is to read some meaning into this, which is, so David took what little bronze Israel had off. And so David goes into battle at the Valley of Elah, and it's right here after reading about bronze and chainmail that David picks up stones and a stick. And you can see how the author is commentating on the progression of modern technology for David's day and age, right? And it's here that Goliath says to David, what am I, a dog that you would come at me with sticks? It's like he's saying, shouldn't you really man up and have a war with us? Because you need to bring bronze to this gunfight, right? David then responds to this by saying, you come against me with sword, spear, and dagger, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh, omnipotent, the God of armies of Israel, whom you insulted. Today, Yahweh will deliver you into my hands, for I will strike you down and cut off your head and leave your carcass and the carcasses of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the beasts of the wilderness. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, which is a very aggressive evangelistic plan, right? He goes on to say, all those gathered here will be witness that Yahweh saves without sword. The battle is Yahweh's, who will put all of you into our power. What is David doing here? David is calling Israel back to the theology of Joshua. It's not about swords. It's not about military tactics. It's not about latest tech. It's all about who's the most devoted to the most powerful God. This is why in so much of Western art, David is depicted as in the nude when he fights Goliath. This whole premise is that David goes there without any bronze on him and goes before Goliath and fights him just with only the armor of God, so to say. And so David runs at Goliath. He picks up a stone. He throws the stone at Goliath's forehead. It knocks him over. And the text reads, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a stone and a sling. He struck down the Philistine without carrying a sword. And David, the person who has no bronze on him, conquers the giant who is covered in head to toe in bronze. You can almost hear the theological questions seeping through the pages, right? The question is, if we can protect ourselves in battle with bronze, then do we even need God anymore? 
Because if God's job is to protect us in battle, and we've got just this amazing technology, which is bronze, is God dead going forward? And religion saw all of this unfold, and religion was really worried that if human beings relied too much on bronze, they would stop relying on God. So religion took a very religious standpoint against this whole thing, and they decided to condemn bronze to protect their understanding of faith, which was you need to worship God in order to protect yourself in battle, not have a lot of bronze. That moves our story from a story in scripture to a story in church history that occurs about 2,500 years after the story of David and Goliath. We find ourselves in Europe with a man named Nicholas Copernicus, who at the last year of his life in 1543, he really got excited about a mathematical equation because Copernicus was handed a geocentric model. Let me hear you say geocentric this morning. And Copernicus figured out how to prove through math that the universe wasn't a geocentric model, but the solar system was in fact a heliocentric model with the sun at the center. Can I hear you say heliocentric this morning? And so he had a math equation to figure it out, first human being in history to figure this out with math. And he published it in 1543 with a book called On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. Now, Copernicus was brilliant because he died the same year he published this because it would have caused a lot of problems for him later in life. That was all transferred to a man named Galileo Galilei, right? And it was here that he started studying and reading the work of Copernicus, and it deeply influenced him. But he wanted to add to the conversation. So Galileo stared through a telescope for a lot of hours, and he eventually published The Starry Messenger. And his main two arguments for a heliocentric universe or a heliocentric solar system was that he could technically observe and record the phases of Venus, which only work if Venus is going around the sun and not Venus going around the earth. Not only that, but he was able to observe for the first time the moons of Jupiter, which proved that moons could orbit around planets and it wasn't dependent on only the earth to keep everything in orbit. So he published the starry messenger and proclaimed that there was in fact a sun at the center of our solar system and the earth revolved around it, not the other way around. He then presented this book at a college in Rome in 1611, where he said, I can prove to you that the sun is at the center of our solar system. And there's this moment, according to Galileo, where a bunch of churchy people were offered the opportunity to look through a telescope and see how the sun was at the center of the solar system, but they refused. They didn't even want to look through the telescope, according to Galileo. Now, you may ask, why is that? The answer is the Bible. If you go back to the Bible, there are a few verses that caused people thousands of years after these verses were written to refuse to look through a telescope to see if Galileo was right or wrong. One of those verses was Psalm 104.5, which says, you set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken. Another verse says, he has established the world, it shall never be moved. The world is firmly established, it shall never be moved, which is also identical to a verse in Chronicles. And so, Galileo says, why don't you look through this telescope? And these churchy people were like, I can't do that. It would betray my faith. After this meeting in 1611, Galileo went about his own business, but the churchy people complained to the higher-ups 
until in 1616, there was a special injunction of Galileo in which the Vatican called in Galileo and said, you got to knock it off with this whole idea that the sun is at the center of our solar system. This is heresy. You're causing all sorts of doubt. Please stop. And I don't know if you've ever read the transcripts from these meetings, but I was really shocked at how wordy they were. And so when you look at what happened on February 26, 1616, this is the court telling Galileo that they found him to be guilty of heresy and what he needs to do going forward. We read, the most illustrious Lord Cardinal himself being also present still, the aforesaid Father Commissionary, in the name of His Holiness the Pope and of the whole congregation of the Holy Office, ordered and enjoined the said Galileo, who was himself still present, to abandon completely the above-mentioned opinion that the sun stands still at the center of the world and the earth moves, and henceforth not to hold, not to teach, not to defend it in any way whatever, either orally or in writing, otherwise the Holy Office office would start proceedings against him. And in one of my favorite lines of church history anywhere, we then read, the same Galileo acquiesced in this injunction and promised to obey. <laughs> I can't imagine Galileo sitting there and being like, I will obey, I promise. And they're like, thank you, thank you for promising Galileo. But he had in his mind what he was going to do because this was all done under Pope Gregory XV, who shortly thereafter died. And Galileo immediately went to the new pope, Pope Urban VIII, and greeted him and tried to be as friendly as possible to him because he knew that in order for him to do science, he had to have some political maneuvering going on, right? So he waited nine or ten years, and then he finally published a second work on the sun being at the center of the solar system. It was called Dialogue. And what Galileo did, he thought he was being very sneaky. But instead of writing, let me tell you why, the sun is at the center of our solar system, Galileo instead couched it all in a dialogue between three people, Salviati, Segreto, and Simplicio. And Simplicio translates to simpleton in English. Basically, Salviati is the person who believes the sun is at the center of the solar system, Segreto is the person who is neutral on a topic, and Simplicio is the idiot, and he makes him an idiot, that believes that the earth is at the center of the solar system, right? And they have this dialogue, and they are just, Salviata is just ripping him apart and making fun of him. Sagrado ends up signing, uh, siding with Salviati, and it is a very transparent metaphor for what Galileo actually believes. So much so that the Vatican did not appreciate this at all. And within a year, they held a trial for Galileo. They looked at this book and they said, did you write this? He said, yes, I did. And they said, well, what is it that you actually believe? Galileo and then went back and forth until they finally handed down a ruling, which is read this way. This is from the church. We say, pronounce, sentence, and declare that you, the above-mentioned Galileo, because of the things deduced in the trial and confessed by you as above, have rendered yourself, according to this holy office, vehemently suspected of heresy, namely of having held and believed a doctrine which is false and contrary to the divine and holy scripture, that the sun is not at the center of the world and does not move from east to west, and the earth moves and is not the center of the world. And that one may hold and defend as probable an opinion after it has been declared and defined contrary to holy scripture." And they came up then with a four-part punishment for Galileo. The first one was that the book Dialogue needed to be banned. The second one was that Galileo then received a lifetime sentence of house arrest. He's 70 years old at this point. 
Number three, Galileo then must recite the seven penitent psalms. And number four, and this is a famous one in history, Galileo must admit the sun rotates around the earth and the earth is still. And they said, this has to happen right now. And so it is recorded in church history as Galileo saying these words, which were handed to him by the church. Galileo said, I have been judged vehemently suspected of heresy, namely of having held and believed that the sun is the center of the world and motionless and the earth is not the center and moves. Therefore, desiring to remove from the minds of your eminences and every faithful Christian this vehement suspicion rightly conceived against me with a sincere heart and unfeigned faith, I adjure, curse, and detest the above-mentioned errors and heresies. And then, according to legend, there's no documentation of this, he said under his breath, and yet, the earth still moves. <laughs> oh, I hope it's true. <laughs> After admitting this, he was then placed under house arrest for the last nine years of his life before he passed away at the age of 79. Why did the church go to so much effort to silence Galileo and then eventually lock him away for the rest of his life? Well, it's because you can hear that theological question being asked, right? Seeping through the pages. If the earth moves and rotates around the sun, well, then do we even need God anymore? Because all of a sudden, we're going to the Bible and telling the Bible what reality is, not the other way around. And the church reacted to this heliocentric model by saying, okay, we have to get rid of this. Religion was worried that if human beings trusted a heliocentric cosmos, then they would lose all trust in the Bible and abandon it. So religion chose to condemn heliocentrism in order to protect the Bible. Which leads us to today, about 400 years later. Here we have a story of David and a story of Galileo. And the question that most Christians don't ask, but I think is essential to understanding church and religious history, is what happened after the stories of David and Galileo? Well, David eventually became king of Israel. And there's this scene in 2 Samuel when King David has conquered three towns. And what does he do once he conquers the town? He collects every bit of bronze he can find. Not only that, his son, Solomon, is in charge of building, building God's temple, the same God who protected David against the bronze warrior. And you know how Solomon decorates this temple? Head to toe, bronze. It's like a building incarnation of Goliath right there, right? Not only that, but David's grandson, Rehoboam, was so nervous about the Egyptians that he started making bronze shields and made sure the bronze shields were all around his bedchamber in order to keep him safe. So we have this idea that this story is about how, oh man, we got to shed all of this armor. We got to transcend technology because God is so much more important. And then the minute these guys get in power, what do they do? We need bronze. You see, Israel became a nation of bronze. And yet, if you continue to read their story, they still relied on God. Even with religion's warning that no one would rely on God anymore if bronze entered the picture. Let's go to Galileo, shall we? Now, I'm not a mathematician. I've got a rocket scientist on the second row of this congregation right now, so I'm going to screw something up. So I'll just say that up front. I don't know how to prove this, but all I can tell you is my personal experience. Scientists once told me that if I show up in a random spot in Idaho on August 21, 2017, at 10.31 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time, that there would be a solar eclipse, but not just any solar eclipse, 
a total solar eclipse. So we drove out to this weird, random spot with a bunch of other hippies, and we waited for the sun to change, right? And wouldn't you know it, right at 1031, boom, these scientists knew the exact space, time, and location that this would happen. Now, I don't know how to prove that the sun is at the center of our solar system, but I know that I can trust these guys who say, show up here and things will happen, and they're absolutely right. I tell you this because I want you all to know something about me. I believe the sun is at the center of our solar system. And I say that in a church, and what's really stunning is, considering where we were 500 years ago, I can say that and none of you are like, Phew, paradox, so controversial. <laughs> Human beings have widely accepted heliocentrism. And you know what's crazy? Even though religion said, well, they're gonna just leave the Bible behind, many of us still trust the Bible, don't we? We still read the Bible. We still show up and we talk about the Bible. Yes, some of our conceptions have changed, but none of us are like, you know what? Religion's a waste. And yet, that was the fear just a few hundred years ago. Now, I point all this out in order to finally get to artificial intelligence. What do these stories teach us about religion, science, humanity, and God? It's the same story over and over again. A new technology shows up, religion says, oh, no, no, don't trust that, because if you do, you're abandoning God. The technology prevails, and then what happens? We keep moving on with our lives. In other words, science wins, religion loses, and God still survives. That's the basic premise of all the stories of technology in religious history, right? We need to break this cycle. This has to stop. Because if religion comes in and says, oh, artificial intelligence, we're playing God, it's like, yeah, but guys, we all know how this is going to play out. Artificial intelligence is going to win. There's no way we can put that back in the box. And the minute someone says, like, well, we're opening Pandora's box with artificial intelligence, my response is, it's open. It's done. Like, we're not going back. And while this may sound heretical for me to say, I have to tell you, if you want to know where faith comes in for me, I have full confidence that God's going to survive all this. I have full confidence that I'm going to believe in God tomorrow, no matter what artificial intelligence brings, right? Not only that, but I can actually learn to embrace what artificial intelligence is because I believe it will expand my understanding of God, right? Just imagine our understanding of God before the Hubble Space Telescope. We got the Hubble Space Telescope and we're like, wow, God's a lot bigger than we imagined. A whole lot bigger. And so technology has the opportunity to expand our understanding of God. And we need to learn how to embrace new technology, including artificial intelligence. So I want to keep that in mind as I talk about the ethical implications of artificial intelligence. And, and the fact is there's three groups of people that I want to address uh, that are software engineers, CEOs, and the rest of us. And I include myself in that group. So if there are any software engineers here, and you're wondering about the ethical implications of artificial intelligence, I want you to know something. There is nothing wrong with advancing technology and human knowledge. It's not a sin. It's not wrong. It's not against the will of God. You are actually doing what I would believe is God's work by trying to push human knowledge and advancing technology. And when you think about what the implications of these ethics are, 
I would say to any software engineer, all you really can control is the work that you do and who or what you decide to work for, right? So if you get the sense that the people that are overseeing you that you're working for are corrupt, you should probably leave. That's my ethical idea for you with artificial intelligence. And if you get the sense that the work that you are doing is hurting people, stop. Don't keep going. If you have this sense that something is wrong, trust that sense because you are all good people and we're trying to figure out this new technology. And if you feel like it's going the wrong way or the people you are working for is taking it the wrong way, own it and change something. However, I want you to know that if you push something forward and you work for a company or a boss that you know, is doing something good and then some rival company or some rival person uses your technology and for evil, you're not responsible for that person. That's on them. And so you can keep going if you feel like you are doing good things in good conscience, but if somebody else comes along that you're not related to, that uses it for something evil, that's not on you. So use that as an ethical compass. Now, if there are any CEOs in the room, I just want to say to you, this pretty much goes for all CEOs, whether you're tech or something else, you're only a good CEO if you recognize that there is always something more important than money. Always. And if money is the only thing that matters, money is part of it, I, I want to acknowledge that, but if it's the only thing that matters or it's priority number one, you're not going to be a good CEO. Additionally, there is something more important than power, always. And so you have to ask yourself as a leader of an organization, what is the most important thing? And if the answer is money or power, stop doing research right then, readjust your priorities, and then step forward. Which brings us to the rest of us who don't understand a thing about artificial intelligence, right? I want you to know, if you've been freaked out by artificial intelligence, I have too. If you've been excited by the possibilities of artificial intelligence, I have too. The idea that I can do a Google search with like educated guesses as opposed to blind clicking is fantastic, right? And what's important for us to acknowledge as mere mortals in this whole game is that no matter how sophisticated artificial intelligence becomes, it will never be human. It's impossible for it to be human. Yes, it can get real close, but it can never be fully human. And we need to become experts in the difference between artificial intelligence and human intelligence. And this is a skill that we need going forward. And the way that we gain our, or grow in our human intelligence is by asking ourselves, what is it that we need to do? And I think the best way to navigate the uncertain future that we are facing with AI is to grow in gratitude for our humanity, to celebrate what it means to be human, to remind ourselves that we're different than machines, right? I don't know about you, but every now and then I end up feeling very nihilistic. And the thing that always helps me in the midst of that nihilism is I try my best to make a healthy, delicious meal and invite friends over and eat it and just taste the good food on my tongue. It reminds me that I am human and that at least I have this moment with these people that I love. I don't know about you, but I am inspired when I see kids who so easily play together. They don't even know each other, and within three minutes, they're best friends. Why? Because their common bond is play. And as adults, what do we forget to do? 
play. This is why when we get a guy's weekend where we go, you know, shopping or a girl's weekend where we go golfing, whatever it is, we feel bonded and alive and human. I don't know about you, but I love that somewhere in my human bones is this desire to explore. And the more that I see mountain vistas with every passing day of my life, I find myself slowing down and appreciating it a little bit more because it's not every day you get to see something like Convict Lake near Mammoth Lakes. I don't know about you, but one of the most inspiring things that I encounter is when human beings create, whether it's art or poetry or some of the amazing music we hear here at Paradox on a regular basis, when somebody's put their soul into it, there are a few things better than that, aren't there? I don't know about you, but there's something about belonging to a community, right? A community that knows your name, a community that cares about you, whether that's a religious community, a social community, a chess club, whatever it is that's your community. There's something about people knowing who you are and also you knowing who they are. I don't know about you, but one of the greatest joys in life is Falling in love, right? Falling in love with someone that you care about and you learn how to say sorry to each other. You learn how to make it a priority to spend time with them. You fall in love, you kiss, you make love, you have a great time together. This is what reminds me about what it means to be human. I don't know about you, I'm not very good at this next one, but I always enjoy dancing at weddings, right? Every time I dance at weddings, people are filming quietly, like under their arm, trying to get me on camera. I'm like, you can pull it out, it's fine, just take the whole video. <laughs> you only get a dance at a wedding every now and then, right? And I've learned that when I dance, I'm not worried about my emails. And there's something valuable about dancing with other people, and the, best, the thing that makes dancing the best is when everyone's into it, right? And speaking of weddings, Every now and then, and I've been to a few weddings, there is a toast that takes my breath away. And it's not a toast that's like, this is my best friend, yay. It's something different, where they talk about how grateful they are for life, and they want everyone to stop and take a moment and drink to it, right? There's a song that recently came out whose chorus is a toast. And it is a toast about what it means to be grateful for our humanity. It's written by a guy named Ryan O'Neill, and it goes like this, to fists unraveling, to glass unshattering, to breaking all the rules, we're to breaking bread again, we're swallowing light, we're swallowing our pride, we're raising our glass till we're fixed from the inside. My friends, may you find that God will always survive whatever technology comes our way. May you love being human, and may you grow in gratitude for our humanity. Amen.